Pastor John is, uh, well, let's just be honest, my friends. He's too tired to preach today. So he sent a pathetic old man. (laughs) Look, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that he takes every opportunity to make fun of me. This is one of those rare moments when an old man gets to strike back. The old man strikes back today. Hey, I'm going to embarrass you too because I love you so much. This is my godson from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and his wife, Elaine. I uh, just stand up for a minute. Thanks, guys. There's real cool things in a person's life that matter. One was the day that Mark was being born, uh, his mother went into crisis during the birth, and they weren't sure if he was going to live or not. And interestingly, the leadership group of our little church was meeting that noon for prayer. I don't know if you knew that. But it, it, and uh, we prayed, ran over to the hospital, and, and uh, he got through it. He survived. And then um, he came to me when he was about 11 or so and said, I want you to baptize me. And that was a great, great joy. And then I got a phone call a couple years ago from his father. Well, first I got a phone call from Mark. His, he was named after me, by the way. Yeah. So I do have people that like me. And he's here today, so there's at least one. And uh, he, he called me a couple years ago and he said, uh, Uncle Mark, I'd, I'm getting married and I'd like you to be there. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? Is he asking me to perform the service, or does he just want me to show up? So he didn't tell me. So I got off the phone, and I thought, what What was that? What am I supposed to do? So I called his father, my oldest friend, uh, way back to Canada, went to high school together. And I said, Conrad, I got an interesting phone call from Mark uh, today. And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, he asked me uh, if I would come to his wedding And he said, yeah. And I said, but I'm not trying to be rude and I'm not trying to push my way into something, but I just don't understand what the obligation means. Am I just to show up in a suit or am I supposed to actually do something in this wedding? And he started to laugh and he laughed and he laughed and he said, well, let me explain the background to that phone call. He said, Mark's wife, Elaine, has only ever seen you at Christmas when you're on vacation being a complete fool. She is, she is unsure whether you are capable of being serious enough to get through something like this. <laughs> so that was the hesitance. So I said, look, pass it along that during the wedding, as we do the vows and things, I will be the straight man. Afterwards at the reception, things will get out of hand. So she trusted me and we did it. And uh, it, was, it was one of the high points of my life, you guys. Now, let me tell you about, look, there's a billion of you I've married in the last year, so these were the first ones, all right? Get a grip, you insecure people. You know, now I know what Pastor John goes through most of the time. I don't want to talk to you people. Let's go out for tacos, the whole church, let's go. Okay, into the message. All right, here's here's the context for this message. I got called up to go to a church in Los Angeles last Sunday. 
And I'd been there the month before. And they were in really, really serious crisis. It's one of the worst situations I've seen a church go through. So they called up and said, we need you to come again and bring a word for our church in the middle of this crisis. And uh, I really love these people. I've been visiting them for six years or so now, every year, sometimes a couple times a year. Great church. Just everything's gone wrong in, in their church's life all at once. Everything imaginable. It's just been a nightmare. So I was praying and I said, you know, Lord, I, I don't want to just go through my sermon index and pick a good sermon on crisis and pull it out and preach it, which is not a bad thing to do. But I'm waiting on you to tell me, what do you want to say to this church? And immediately, this thought came into my head, which I attribute to God. This thought came into my head, did you bring us out into the desert to kill us? Isn't that interesting? And I thought to myself, I know where that's from. That's uh, somewhere in Exodus. So I went to the passage and begun to read the story that surrounds that one phrase, have you brought us out into the desert to kill us? And the context for this phrase was so perfect for that church. I just threw the sermon together. It just flowed in minutes. Went up there, preached it, early service, second service, and um, it was devastating. I mean, it was the word for them. I've never had a response like that to any single message. And uh, then I can, Shelly was there. She went up too and she said, oh, that was such a good message. You need to preach that at our church. And I said, we're not in crisis. None of those awful bad things are happening to us. And she said, but they're happening to people. They're happening to individuals. And it got under my skin. I said, no, 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 no. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, there's not much difference between the corporate body, a church, and an individual. We go through phases, we go through difficulties, we fight tragedies together, we find ourselves in the perfect storm. And this message is called the perfect storm. Because some of you are in the perfect storm or you're going into the perfect storm. How do we react? So, the perfect storm, subtext, God's means to God's ends. Why do I say that, God's means to God's ends? It's this, you guys... God is always about delivering you from evil. He is always, always, always about getting you through the storm that you're in. But he rarely does it the way you want him to. Right? Like you're in a crisis and you go, okay, Lord, I have a list. I've worked this out. I've thought this through. Here are your six steps programmed to my complete deliverance and success. And you start praying that and you give him the list and it never... To me, it's never, ever happened the way it was supposed to according to the Gospel of Mark. It just doesn't, right? So, God's means are different than our means, but His goal is always the same. He is about your betterment. He is about your deliverance. He's about rescuing you, but it often doesn't come the way you expect. So, let's look at What was going on for the children of Israel in this little story in Exodus 13 and 14? The context is this, very simply. I felt like dancing for a minute. The context is this. God's people are in trouble. They have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. 
They have forgotten as a people. Figure three or four hundred years of slavery. That's generation after generation after generation. The first generation can remember what it was like not to be a slave. The second generation remembers some stories from mom and dad about what it was like not to be a slave. The third, fourth, fifth, sixth photocopies just get more and more distorted. They have reached a point where they cannot remember what it was like not to be a slave. They have adjusted their mindset. Listen, they've adjusted their mindset to their present circumstances. Hello? And they have adapted and gotten used to this, and this is now normal, and they're not even sure what deliverance is. They don't know what it would be like to live as a free people. They're not even emotionally prepared for it. But, despite that, God has a plan for their deliverance. God promises deliverance, and He always does. Third context for uh, this story is God demonstrates His ability. Remember the miraculous plagues? Well, let me run through them. There are a whole bunch of them. The first one was water into blood. That could change your economy. Turn on the tap and out comes blood. Frogs. Not in France, Ella frogs, Ella frogs legs for dinner, but frogs everywhere. Flies everywhere. All the Egyptian livestock die. Boils break out on their bodies. Hail. You're thinking hail. Big deal. What's hail? You live in California. You've never seen hail. You poor sheltered people. In Canada, we have hail the size of golf balls. I once drove, I had bought a brand new Honda Accord and I drove home from my office because I felt sick in the afternoon and I parked it on the street, not in the garage, went to bed, woke up to the sound of my house being destroyed by a million little hammers, ran to the front door and looked out on the street at my car and hailstones the size of golf balls were pounding every horizontal surface like this. It only lasts, by the way, about six or seven minutes. When you're finished, all of your plants look like a little kid's Sunday school project where they've taken toothpicks and stuck them up through a piece of paper. That's your yard, and then your car just looks like somebody took ball-peen hammers, a whole bunch of them, and did a drum solo on every horizontal surface, and your car is ruined, and I, I watched that. So for you people that don't have weather, Californians, there's a world out there you'll never understand. Hail! locusts, and then the death of all of the Egyptian firstborn. Look, if God had done all that for you in the space of a couple of weeks, would you trust him? Would you say, whoa, this God's quite competent. He's, he's quite powerful. I think he has the ability to get me out of trouble. Wouldn't that be enough? Well, as we'll see in a moment, it wasn't enough. Finally, the context is God identifies his leader. And this is interesting, and this is not the application of today's message, but it was up there in L.A. God identifies his leader. When God is going to bring deliverance, he usually has someone through whom he does it. In fact, I can't think of any time when he didn't have a leader through whom he did it. So the context is the people are in trouble. God promises deliverance. He demonstrates his ability to do it. He chooses a leader, and he begins to act. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. 
Now, if you take a Bible map, and sometimes it's a really good idea when you're looking at Old Testament stories to take a Bible map and put this thing in some sort of um, geographic context. The route from Egypt to the Promised Land was less than two weeks, about 11 days' march, if they head straight to their destination. But heading straight to their destination takes them through the land of the Philistines, who are a mighty, warlike people. God says, if they face war against the Philistines, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road towards the Red Sea. On a map, it's a huge diversion. This is the straight across, and this is what he did. Months and months and months and months and months of travel to get to their final destination, all to avoid having to fight. Because, he says, if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Anyone see the disconnect? What's the disconnect? They went out armed for battle, and the Lord said, you're not ready. In their minds, they were ready. In their minds, they were all they needed to fight the Philistines and get to the Promised Land. Their perception was, I'm competent, I can do this, we're ready. And God's true understanding was, you people are not ready. If you face adversity, you may just turn around and run right back to the way you used to live, and I'll never be able to set you free. So, for the time being, I'm going to take you the long way where you will not have to fight a battle that you will end up running from. All right? It's important. The people believed they were ready, but God did not believe. Why were they not ready? Take a guess. Why were they not ready? We're going to show you in a minute. Why do you think they weren't ready? They still have a slave mentality, and they have not, and this is bizarre, they have not yet learned to trust God. We're going to see it in a moment. It's right in the text. They have not yet learned to trust God. They have not yet come to obey God or His leader, and no army can fight and win without trust in their leadership. God now has to bring them to a place of trust and obedience in Him and His human leadership. If they are going to become the people who can occupy the land, fulfill the promise, fight the ites. Remember the ites? Name some of the ites. Amorites, Hittites, Malachites, Jebusites. They're all the ites. If they're going to conquer the ites and take the land, they have to learn to fight. Because although God leads them away from the first battle because they're not ready, although He's promised the promised land, they are going to have to possess it. He makes a promise, but He doesn't automatically do everything for you and instantly plant you in the fulfillment of the promise. There will be struggle and there will be fighting to take the land. They think they're ready. He knows they're not. They don't trust in God. They're not following Him or the leadership. And He has to get them to a place where they're ready to do that trusting before He takes them into the promised land. How does He do it? 
How does God get you into a place where you are really trusting him after he's made you a promise? Hmm? Everything goes wrong. The testing phase comes. How many of you have received a promise from God and you go, oh, this is the best, this is fantastic, I know He's spoken, great, let's do it. And then within days, everything happens opposite to what He said. Your life is actually worse than before you got the promise. Has that happened to anybody here? I claim that. Yes, Pastor, I claim that. Not because I want to, but because that's how it often happens. God's route to building trust in you is often to take you through a place of profound testing. And this is exactly what he did to the Israelites. Listen to this in Exodus 14, 1 and 2. He says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, it means nothing. Where's that? Sounds like Ramona. (laughs) I did it on purpose. I just wanted to see if you guys were awake. That little phrase doesn't mean anything, but again, if you take the Bible map and you look, what he's doing by saying, tell them to turn back and camp near such and such between so and so by such and such, They're not going further away from their problems. They're going right back to the Egyptians. The Egyptian army is coming out to get them, and God says, turn around and go into a very difficult place. And the place he ends up putting them is between a rock and a hard place. They end up with the Red Sea on one side with no boats. And the Egyptian army, which is the strongest militarized fighting force in human history at that point in time, and they're all bearing down on them and they're going to annihilate them. They are between the sea and the Egyptian army and there is no escape. And this is where God put them. Any lights coming on? I hope. These divine directions took them backwards into an impossible situation. Here's the point. When God is going to teach us to trust and obey Him and His leadership in our lives, He never calls us to a fair fight. Ever. We just have to get this clarified. As Christians, we will not be called to a fair fight you will never be in a fair fight. If you are in a fair fight, it's because you found a way to get yourself into a fair fight. You manipulated and maneuvered the situation so you got yourself into a fair fight because you were confident you could handle it and this is a fair fight. And what happens when you're in a fair fight? What don't you need when you're in a fair fight? You don't need God. You got you and it's a fair fight. But when you're in an impossible situation and it's clearly not a fair fight, the one thing left to you is God. The lesson you are going to learn is apostasy or trust. You are going to give up your faith and walk away from Him or you are going to learn to trust Him. There's no middle ground here. Right? Think about it. David and Goliath. Not a fair fight. Till God got a hold of the rocks. Gideon. Started out a fair fight. And God just cut his army of... 30,000, some down to 300. Not a fair fight. 
Not with Joshua. Not with the disciples versus the Sanhedrin. Not with anybody. A lot of times, when we find ourselves in an unfair fight, we start complaining to God. Like you've done something wrong. No, he's done exactly the right thing. If you're going to grow in trust, he's done the right thing. And the story unfolds, Exodus 14, verses 10 and 12. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, rightly so, and cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses. Did you see that? They cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses. See the little leadership thing? They cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Well, there's a people that forgot what it is to be free. And even the promises of God cannot awaken belief. Even the promises of God plus the plagues cannot awaken belief. <laughs> you know, I felt like saying, hey boneheads, what more can he do? I mean, what, what's the next trick, parlor trick, you want him to perform for you that might cause you to believe that he's really wonderful? You know what they're suffering from here? They're suffering from the same thing we suffer from on just about a daily basis. It's a little phrase you won't find in the Bible. It goes like this. Hey God, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? That's what they're suffering from. I mean, he just did the most amazing display of power the Bible's ever seen. Gone down in human history as that was some special couple of weeks. But now it's a week or so later and they're facing a problem again and it's, what have you done for me lately? And inside each of us, there's a little voice that whispers, what have you done for me lately? Short memories on his goodness, long memories on the problems. And we need long memories on his goodness and short memories on the problems. That's the truth. And that, guys, is an attitudinal adjustment. We have to start thinking differently. I get into trouble and I start complaining to the Lord and I don't know, it must be Him, but He prompts me to ask, you know one of the questions He says to me? I'll tell you, when I was 30 years old, Mark, in my first marriage, I wanted children desperately. just wanted children more than anything. And she couldn't conceive. And she was afraid to have kids because she was afraid to become her mother. And she did never want to do to a child what was done to her. So she had huge fear issues in having children, and I had huge fear issues in not having children. And I was praying about it one day to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me with a thought in my head, and he said, what are you afraid of? In not having children, what are you afraid of? And I mean, I paused and I thought, and I said, I'm afraid of getting old alone and having no one that cares about me. And he asked me a question. It's great. He said, how have I been so far? 
said, how have I been so far? And I started to think. And I thought, you're unbelievable. You're incredible. I mean, I'm so happy with you. And my life is so blessed. And, and I started running through all the things he'd done for me. And he said to me, what makes you think it's going to be any different when you're 64? And I'll tell you, folks, fear went that day. Just left and it's never come back. And God gave me different kind of children. Lots. More than I could handle in the house. (laughs) Stop doing the what have you done for me lately and start looking back over your past at the evidence of his faithfulness and his movement in your life. And by the time you finish that little exercise, you got faith. You're ready. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to trust you. I know it's hard. Even now it's, good. it's hard even thinking about the past, but I'm going to trust you because I've seen your faithfulness and goodness in my life. Now, they complain to God and say, what have you done for me lately? Did you bring us out here to die? Would have been better if we just stayed slaves. They crab and complain to him, He doesn't get angry. He answers their question. Did you bring us out here to die? And he answers their question, and this is what he says. Moses answered the people. He spoke through his leader. Moses answered the people, saying, Do not be afraid. Now listen. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. I love this phrase. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Okay, look, guys. That would have been really powerful and he could have easily left off. The Lord will fight. He he could have said this. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance I'm going to bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, period. That would have been a real good paragraph. Get the point across. Everything's good. You understand? Faith building. Then he ends with this. You need only to be still. Why did he say that? Is that just a throwaway line? That, by the way, might be the most important words in the paragraph. I'm going to do this for you. The Egyptians you see today, you're never going to see again. I'm powerful and I'm going to fight for you, but you need to be still. Why? What's he talking about? What do you mean you need to be still? What's he saying? Come on, what's he saying? Okay, there's more though. The first part was all that, but he throws in, you must be still. You need to be still. What does he mean by be still? Don't do anything for yourself. Don't take initiative to solve this problem. Don't try to make this happen. Trust me. Come to me. I am going to do it for you. Why does he have to tell them this? Because deep within all of us, no matter how saved we are, there's two little creatures, pride and independence. Don't think you don't have them living within. We all still have them living within. Pride and independence. I just as soon do this myself. I just as soon solve this problem myself. I know I can do this. I think I can do this. 
Well, I don't care. I'm going to do this. See, pride mixed with independence turns into a problem. I know I can do this. I think I can do this. Well, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to do this. Take the initiative. Just go out and solve your own problems. Look at Here's the problem with that problem. What happens if you succeed? Worst case scenario is that it works. Do you understand? In God's world, with his relationship with you, the worst thing that can happen in that crisis is that you pull it out of the hat and everything's fine. That was a tight one. It was pretty scary there for a while. But I sucked it up. I, I, I dug deep. I'm going to go to a lot of football. I dug deep. I left it all on the field. Blah, blah, blah. Slogan, slogan, slogan. I did it. Now give me my $27 million. Pride. Now, that, now you're in worse shape. Now you're not ready for the next crisis that you can't handle. You need only to be still. It is always our first thought to do something about our problem. Most of the time when we face a crisis, we live our lives according to the expression, don't just stand there, do something. Don't just stand there, do something. And I love Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, because he flips it around and says, in the middle of the crisis, the first thing you should say to yourself is don't just do something, stand there. It's very wise. Because the panic and the insecurity and the pride and the independence and the fear inside of you will drive you to immediately go out and try to fix it. Oh, man. And that's usually when it's now twice as bad as it was before you fixed it. Right. Shelley gets into scrapes in relationships with people. We all do, by the way, so don't think my wife is a psycho. But she'll have some problem working with somebody on something, and, which happens in life, right? Oh, gosh, no. John and I have never had a difference on anything. <laughs> she'll get into some scrape with somebody, and she'll come to me, and, and she'll tell me all about it, you know, rattling. Ooh, it's the end of the world. I've lost my friend. Blah, 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 blah. What should I do? And I say, nothing. What? Nothing. Just wait. Just wait. She'll come around. Trust God. Don't act out of panic. Any action born of fear is the wrong thing to do. The devil's agenda is to get you operating out of your fears. God's agenda is to get you operating out of trust. Any action precipitated by fear is a biblically wrong decision in principle. Because it's motivated by the wrong spirit, right? But it's the first thing we want to do. So God says, you've got to sit still. Don't run out and fix it. Wait till your heart is calm. Wait till you've reconnected with Him. Wait till you have in mind all of His faithfulness to you over the last period of your life. Wait till you've come into an atmosphere of trust and peace. And this is not easy to do, people. And I'm not flipping this off like, oh, yes, a little piece of advice, just be at peace. It is a struggle to come into a place of trust and peace with God. Being still in the middle of a crisis is the most difficult thing to do. 
So I'm not flipping this out like, oh, cheap little advice. It's very hard, but it requires a singleness of mind that says, I am not going to go out and solve my problem. I'm going to wait on the Lord till He speaks, gives me what to do, and then I will do it in a climate of trust and faith. Don't do anything. Don't just do something. Stand there. Any action these people would have initiated in this situation would have been their solution if it worked and would have gotten them killed if it didn't. They had to learn to fight. If they can't learn to fight and trust him and take directions from him, they can't possess the promised land. And what's the result? They actually did choose to trust him. Push came to shove, they trusted him, and they were still. And this is the result. Exodus 14, 30 and 31. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in, in Moses, his servant. And the word feared there, the people feared the Lord. The Hebrew word does not suggest they were afraid of his power because he was going to punish them or he's a harsh God. The word fear there means to hold in the absolute highest regard of reverent adoration and respect. It means they saw him for who he really is. The window opened. They finally got it. Oh, he is amazing. There's a psalm I love. It's Psalm 62, and it says this, One thing the Lord has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O Lord, are powerful, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Very interesting. One thing the Lord has spoken, but two things I've heard. Here's the problem. When we think about God, we either think He's very powerful, but He doesn't love me very much, or He's very loving, but He doesn't have much power to help me. We fall, in a one, fall into one of two satanic lies. Either he's not powerful enough to help me or he's not loving enough to help me. Putting a powerful God together with a loving God is very difficult when our prayers haven't been answered. And we are tempted to revert to one of those two conclusions. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. God is both. And he is for you. But the means of him coming through for you will rarely be what you anticipate it to be, and it will always require stillness and trust. Absolutely. You can't run out to fix it. Wait. Listen. Wait. Listen. Pursue intimate relationship with him, still and quiet your heart. I have stilled and quieted my heart within me like a weaned child at its mother's breast is my soul within me. I do not concern myself with matters that are too great for me, beyond me, for I have stilled and quieted my spirit like a weaned child with its mother is my heart within me. That disposition leads to trust and peace. And out of the trust and peace, he quietly speaks. And you know what to do. And when you know what to do, because he's spoken it, you will do it with such confidence and such faith, the devil cannot stop the result. But it must proceed from a place of stillness. Absolutely. All right. 
Here's the point. God has allowed a perfect storm to come against many of us. Illness, not yet healed. Loss of job, divorce, broken relationships, betrayal by a friend, financial insecurities, whatever. Many of us are in the perfect storm. And if we're not, our country is. Do you understand? We're entering the perfect storm, the perfect financial storm. And it isn't going to get better quickly. Don't believe what they tell you. It's not going to get better quickly. It's going to be a long time. A readjustment of our entire way that we see our lives and what's important and what's valuable. It's, by the way, a great opportunity to grow. And Christians who are at peace in the middle of this and trusting their God will shine. Lots of us are in the perfect storm. Listen, there's two agendas at work in our lives right now. Only two agendas at work in your life. The first one is Satan's agenda. Here it is, step by step. Number one, how is he working in your life? What's Satan's plan for your life? Here it is. Number one, bring trouble to sow fear. Number two, use the fear to destroy trust in God and his leadership. Three, use this lack of trust to prompt independence, rebellion, grumbling, faithless faithless thinking, and despair. Number four, to prompt a human and fleshly solution born of fear and mistrust, resulting in independence from God and your brothers and sisters. Ultimately, to separate you from the body and pick you off when you are alone and separated from all your sources of faith and hope. The first thing you do when you get to Idaho is you find a good church and you get into it. You don't circle around and think, oh, maybe. You get in, you get committed, you get to know people as fast as you can, you sink your roots because you're going to need them. Fear, mistrust, grumbling, and rebellion destroy unity, and that disunity is what destroys the church. Satan's only true effective weapon against God's church is disunity. It is his WMD. His goal is not only to separate you from God and his people, but to spread this fear and mistrust through the whole church and to destroy it. What's God's agenda? Because it's a lot better. To strengthen you and the church in trust and obedience in him and his leadership and to grow you and the church in love and power. Straight up. How does he do it? How do you cooperate with him in this? Number one, Don't take any action that is independent from God. Don't take any action that has not been birthed from stillness. Number two, watch and wait. Just watch and wait. I'm not arguing passivity here. Waiting on the Lord is active. It's not passive. The verbs are active verbs, waiting on the Lord. They're not passive verbs. Waiting on the Lord takes focus. Be still. Take all your fears to Him. Express your fears to him. Number three, trust him by trusting his leaders. Number four, stay in the herd where you are supported because you are going to need it. Number five, find brothers and sisters to trust with your fears. Be open to receiving ministry from them, but only after going to God first. You know? First, we're tempted to independent action, just go out and fix it. 
then we're tempted to taking our wisdom from people, not God, because people have flesh and you can grab hold of them and look in their eyes and God's harder to pursue. But ultimately what you need is you need to hear from God. What will waiting accomplish? What will this stillness accomplish in your life? Number one, and this is worth the price of admission, if all that results is this, you have grown. Waiting, not pursuing your own independent action, first benefit, you will have to bring your fears, angers, hurt, and distrust to God alone. That's worth the price of admission right there. Number two, you will end up having to choose to trust Him and not relying on your own solution. Number three, your relationship with your Father will deepen and your trust and peace will grow. Number four, you'll grow in trust with your brothers and sisters and become a part of an army that loves like a family and a family that fights like an army. And together, you will possess the land. Okay? Look, there's a big, mighty application to this message. I just sense it in my spirit. Can't walk out and not apply this in some fashion. Because we do find ourselves in the perfect storm. We do find ourselves beyond our abilities. And we need God. And we need His peace. And we need to get still. So I want to have an opportunity for anyone that would like to be prayed for, to come forward and be prayed for. And when we pray for you, the Lord's suggesting this, normally our prayer team will have much to say to you. And it might even be prophetic, and it might be from the Lord. Today, nothing. You come forward, we're going to lay on hands, and we're not going to say a word. We're just going to bless you with the presence of God and wait for Him to speak and move in your life. But I believe He will. So if you'd like to be prayed for right now, before we dismiss, come forward right now and our prayer team is going to quietly lay hands on you and we're going to pray for an encounter with receiving from God what you need in your situation. God is so neat. God is so full of love. Is that on? Yeah. He's so full of love. Um, I was driving, I was on the road a lot this week, and as I was driving home, the Lord spoke to me about this service and uh, what he wanted to do. And then as we were in worship, you know, I was thinking, is this the time you want to do this, Lord? He said, no, I want you to wait till the end of the service. <laughs> and that key point, Mark, just said, the Lord wants to deliver some from fear, anger, shame, and guilt. And he spoke to me about us coming into a place of really understanding what it is to be sons of the, of the living God. As we step into that place of sonship, knowing our love, the love he has for us, we're really putting ourselves into a place of trust, and it's a place of inheritance. And it's that place of through that place of inheritance, we have rights, powers, and authority to be delivered from fear, anger, shame, and guilt. And God wants to break that off of you today. If you're feeling any of those, this altar call is for you. So I don't want you to miss this opportunity. If you're in a tough place and you need prayer, admit it and come forward and receive. Can I, can I just explain?
expand on that a second because I was fighting this whole thing this week and I apologize to do this because we should get into it. But um, in remarks to that fear, there is a foreboding fear, a spirit that hinders a lot of people and it's a fear that something bad's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. And it's, it's a constant. It's not just a one-time thing where I'm, afra- I'm afraid to make a decision. It's a foreboding fear, a fear that constantly follows you throughout the day and each day saying, I just know something bad's going to happen. If I do this, something bad's going to happen, which is a mistrust in God. So God's going to deliver you from that fear that constantly follows you over everything in your life. Thank you. That's really good. That, um, that is a spirit of fear and uh, the way you know that you have what she's talking about is it doesn't attach to anything. It's not like I'm afraid of this or that. It's just like it's just there all the time. You just live in a state of fear and anxiety and worry. If that's you, come forward. We want to pray for you. In any other situation where you find yourself in crisis, you need to hear from the Lord. You need a leg up as far as stillness and waiting is concerned. You come now and we're going to pray for you. And then everybody else, you're dismissed.